The Women in Media podcast is proudly sponsored by Organic Traditions for spring 2024. Stay tuned for a special deal during this episode. I'm Sarah Burke, and this is the Women in Media podcast. I've had my eye and ear on this guest for a very long time. Although she's a retired broadcaster now, she's a Canadian music and broadcast industry hall of famer, an author, a podcaster, and someone who woke up Toronto for 30 years of her life on the CHFI Morning Show. The day of Lauren's funeral in Ottawa, a bunch of people from CHFI, they came to that funeral and we gathered at the hotel, motel kind of thing where, where Rob and I were staying and there was a bar and restaurant there. We were sitting up at the bar, I was sober then, and we said to the server, I said, can we get a bunch of chicken fingers and fries? And she said, oh, sorry, the, uh, the, the kitchen's closed. And I said, well, that is the worst thing that's happened to me today. If it keeps me laughing, if I can find a way to, to joke about it. My guest today is the one and only Aaron Davis. How are you? I'm good. Glad to be here, Sarah. Thank you so much for the kind words. So you're in Victoria right now. And if I have this correct, you're sort of out of the radio scene for about six years now. Yeah, more or less. When we moved here to the island at the end of 2016, in uh, 2017, the Roger station out here, Ocean 98.5, found themselves in need of a midday host. And I was really, I'd been like sitting here just filling my days and then drinking away my evenings with nothing to do. And I said, yeah, I'll do it, I'll do it. So it gave me purpose again. But the great thing about it, Sarah, too, is that it made me learn my new city. You don't want to get the names of the streets wrong in the place that you're broadcasting, right? Because nothing screams, outsider! than uh, somebody who doesn't know how to say Esquimalt instead of Eskimo or something like that. So, yeah, so it was a great thing. And once again, in a smaller, smaller way, radio kind of got me back on the rails again, saved my life. So since then, though, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm sleeping like I'm getting paid for it. <laughs> Love to hear that. Was yeah. that shocking, actually, because you spent like 30 years in a major market? Was it shocking to be in such a small market, like a little bit of a culture shift? Yes and no. Uh, it took me a long time not to wear makeup when we were walking the dogs, which sounds so pathetic, but it's just that you're so used to being recognized when you go places. You don't want people going home and saying, wow, that Aaron Davis looked like a bag. So, uh, I, I mean, and other people are just fine with it. They take off the face when they take off the headphones and that's fine. Good for you. I couldn't. My mom was the same. But yeah. um, when we moved here, it took that shift and it was like, nobody knows me, nobody cares, it's just fine. So that was the best part. But the smaller town, smaller culture I was used to because we used to escape to cottages every weekend. So that was always my jam. That's always where I felt the most at home was away from the pavement. What is the weirdest spot that you've been recognized? I was at... <laughs> <laughs> okay. So this was very early on in my career, but it was, I was at a doctor's office for a very specific feminine procedure. And, uh, and, and he was, you know, kind of down there under the sheet and he said, so you're Aaron from the radio. And I said, that's funny. Most people recognize my voice. And <laughs> honest to God, 
It happened. What a moment to like bring up something you just don't want in that moment, eh? Oh, I Jeez. know. I know, I know. But, you know, it's just you learn all of that, that, that people will oh, mostly in washrooms, right, when you're standing washing your hands. But that's because I've just been on stage introducing someone and I've just run off to the loop for a minute. My husband was recognized on the streets of Milan once by Saul Corman. Do you remember Saul Corman? The, the, he was on Bloor Street. He was a, he was a haberdasher. Uh, I know, haberdasher. What is this, the 19th century? But he was a, a clothier, and he did commercials everywhere, and he called out my husband. So it was, um, it was, it was funny. You, you just never know where you're going to be where you're going to be recognized. I think in Egypt we were recognized. I, I might have been wearing a Toronto shirt, but not a CHFI shirt. So anyway. So funny. Yeah, it's why I always wore makeup. I'm telling you. <laughs> yeah, like I started my radio career in London, Ontario. And, you know, a couple years in, it was like at the gas station. Like if you, if you caught yourself, you know, not putting on makeup or wearing your joggers, like it was going to happen. It was a small right. enough town. So it seems to me, like not knowing you very well, that mourning the loss of your daughter that changed a lot for you and I think you know you were one of those names that came to mind as someone who's really come out of this with um so much like hope and love for the career even though you just went through like the most terrible thing for a parent I'm often really intrigued about how women handle hard stuff in the spotlight how did that affect where you are today and your decisions around radio at that time um yeah, I, you, you've nailed it, the, the way that you sort of perceive all of this, Sarah, because um, when I talked about, you know, radio kind of getting me back on the rails and saving me when we had moved out here, uh, it, it most definitely did that for me after we lost Lauren. She died May 11, 2015, and then uh, Rob and I did some hard counseling, and we... Uh, we did two funerals, one in Ottawa for where she worked and had her career in radio and had her husband and baby, and then one in Toronto. So there was a lot compacted into that one month and a fair bit of it on the road because we went down to the States to a place that I had done some spiritual and soul work before. And then June 11th came around and it was one month to the day and it was my, you know, since she had died, um, June 11th was my dad's birthday, still is. And I just thought, okay, if I don't go back now, I may never go back. So let's do this. And it was It was just, only a month? It was one month. Wow. You can yeah. stay away that long. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It just, I, I, I only took a week for my maternity leave when Lauren was born, funny enough. Uh, she, wow. she nursed in my arms while I did three months at home. Um, so I just knew, Cooper called me on the phone one morning and I knew he was going to call and we were talking and then we got to laughing and it was just this, it's the obscenity of laughing when your heart is so broken. It's just, uh, it's like screaming in church, right? Why? Yeah. Why did I do that? And it, it just feels so wrong. But just knowing that that feeling was there and that these were my people, these were my safe people right there in that little studio. Uh, you know, our producers, Gord and Ian and, and Mike and me and Steve, our newscaster, we were all together as a family and it was safe. So it, it felt like they were leading me back to the water <clears throat> and then kind of throwing me overboard. And eventually I was able to get up to the surface faster and faster every day. Um, so it was, it was exhausting. It was, it, it was a real trial. But at the end of the day, I always kept in mind at the end of the show, I should say 9am, watch my cliches, 
that people <laughs> had their own day, lives going on. They had their own grief. They had their own challenges. And it was a lot, enough to make me step out of mine and focus on theirs and just remember what I was there for. It wasn't PMS. It wasn't poor me syndrome. It was going to be about, the show was going to be about them and making them yeah. laugh and letting them know that things can be okay. You can come through something, you know, in, in pieces, but still intact. Um, so... Does that make sense? That's yeah, how I approached yeah, totally. it all. Yeah, radio saved me again. And how do you remember framing that conversation for the airwaves? Well, I think by then everyone knew um, because the mm -hmm. station had made quite a big deal out of it. They, they played splitters about Lauren. They played sad music. They, yeah, Beautiful. it was really kind of above and beyond because Rob, my husband, sort of talked to Julie Adam, who was the senior senior there and, and a very good friend of the family, as it turned out. Um, he said, be careful. You don't want to be branded as the sad station. Nobody wants to think, oh, I'd listen to CHFI, but they're bawling over some kid there. So it, we, were, we were really quite worried about that. Um, but she has she has good intuitions and good smarts, but the station was there around us and beside us the whole time. And, and so when I came back, it was just like, Aaron's decided it's time to come back. And, uh, and that's what I did. I mean, they could hear in my voice that I was still pretty mortally wounded. I was, I, my voice was lower. I didn't have a higher register. I wasn't able to pull up the, you know, the sunshine and the enthusiasm that, that are always in me but that some days we all have to dig a little deeper for. And eventually I was able to find them. So it was just being there and going through it and laughing with my idiot partners. It was just, you know, being an idiot myself. That was the best of it all. Don't be the sad podcast, Sarah. Don't be the sad podcast. <laughs> no, I wouldn't want to be the sad podcast. And it's funny you should mention management. Um, Julie Adam was actually a guest on this podcast before, and she mentioned, you know, a situation with you as one of the toughest times in her career. Yeah, well, to work backwards, um, 2005, I came back. Okay, R rewind a decade. And just before I came back, I had this crisis this crisis. And I said to Julie, if I was too old two years ago, what am I now? And she said, you were never too old. That wasn't it. That wasn't it. She kind of had to walk me, talk me through this whole thing because uh, I just, I had just felt so completely, you know, <laughs> the, the rug pulled out from everything. And I hate to say it, but this topic of women aging and being sort of discarded from the media has certainly come up on this podcast before. Well, that's so much. I mean, the women aging thing is, that is just, it's really on my mind now because I'm on the threshold of turning 60 and I really do feel like I've got, God, decades left in me to work and to communicate and to, to continue doing what I'm doing, but now I'm doing it on my own terms. It's all, it's all in your head. I mean, there are women on the air right now who are older than I and are, are holding on to their jobs and doing really well. Whether they'll get the chance to, you know, keel over at the microphone like most of the old guys used to is, uh, is the big question because I think it's not going to happen. But anyway, going back to the, the whole, you know, 2003 thing, it wasn't an age thing at the time. It's that my new partner and I just hadn't gelled. There wasn't the sparks that there was with my previous partner, uh, Don Daynard. And that those sparks were chemistry because there was a lot of friction there. And Bob and I just got along so well. And I mean, I'd been, it'd been, it's like I had been working opposite, I don't know, 
John Wayne, and then in came Fraser Crane. So it was just it was just two completely different personalities, and our numbers were not as strong as they had been. We were still like a number two or a number three in the market, and then they just looked down the hall and they saw this Kiss <laughs> morning show with Mad Dog and Billy that they had literally just spent a million dollars promoting with a big contest. And then they thought, well, we want to euthanize, and I swear to God that's what one of the general managers said was euthanize, which of course is a euphemism for killing. But they said, we want to euthanize CHFI. So they brought in the Kiss Morning Show, turfed Bob and me. Bob moved to afternoons, but my contract only called for mornings. And then the rest was sort of history. And so at 2005, in 2005, late in the year, late in the summer, I was uh, called and asked if I would come back. And I kind of set my own terms and had a whole bunch more self-confidence, respect for myself, respect from people around me, because this kind of thing hadn't happened before, where listeners were like a hive of bees who were at one station and then moved over to another station, which is where I found Mike Cooper, and when I was there with him. And then I brought Mike and the hive back to CHFI, and we all lived happily ever after until we didn't. So there it is. What do you think some of the characteristics are, on that note then, of a well-functioning team with great chemistry? Like, what made the magic, whether we're talking about you and Mike or you and a previous co-host? It's hard to say, Sarah, because the elements of the first super pairing were completely different from the elements of the second super pairing. The first one with me and Daynard was you know, the target demographic for most stations is 25-54. Well, guess what? I was 25. He was 54. <laughs> it was like both ends of the demographic, more like a family reunion than, uh, than a couple sitting across the breakfast table. And so we approached things from such a different angle. He was a father of mature and maturing children. I was pregnant. I had a baby basically on the air. And, uh, and then, you know, I liked Spice Girls, he liked Andrew's sisters, you know, that kind of thing. There was just so many differences. Plus, he had so little regard for me uh, as, a, uh, as a broad in broadcasting, you know, like, uh, what are you doing here? Why can't I have my old buddies from the other station? Why do I have to sit here and, and, and be across from this girl? When I wasn't going to be the paid laugher, I wasn't going to be the girl who came in and tittered at all of his jokes like so many of the female sidekicks were in radio at that time. I had been brought in from the newsroom because they heard me doing news and they heard me doing quips with him at the end of the newscast and they went, oh, we've got something here. And so um, that's how I was brought in. So um, there was a begrudging father-daughter love between us, though. And ironically, his name, Don Daynard, my dad's name, Don Davis. He was born in 34, my dad, 33. So, you know, there were so many similarities and in my family. And I always wanted from him that approval and love, but I didn't ever get it. So there was so much emotional packed into that relationship. But in the end, it made for a great radio show. So we, we powered through it. And... I got through my feelings by drinking every night, and that's when it all began. I have to wonder, um, specifically regarding the recent Derringer and Jen Valentine situation, um, what would maybe go through, like, you know, your mind at 25 if you heard about Derringer being um, taken off the air after Jen Valentine came forward? Oh, my 25-year-old mind would have been devastated my 59-year-old mind says, can you die of schadenfreude? 
Um, I don't know. I'm looking it up on WebMD. You're going to be talking with Lisa Brandt in the future, and she won't name names, but boy, she, she took a lot more abuse than I did. And I dealt with, you know, a co-host who would throw carts, which were like eight-track tapes. If anybody remembers them, he would throw them at the wall, and I'd be sitting there writing my newscast and just jump out of my chair, screaming and yelling. I had a co-host, it was Don, who would scream and yell and, and just go off in tantrums and rages. And, and I would just sit there sort of cowering and not know what to do. Um, you know, it, the, it was just, um, and begging for help and not getting any. Uh, basically telling management, writing a two or three page letter, which I still have. I found it in a box in the basement because it didn't obviously make any difference to the people I sent it to, saying, please, I know you're signing him up for another extension. Please make sure this is something he wants to do because he's so unhappy here. And, I, and I'm the one who takes the brunt of it. But no, nothing. He was, the, he was the big guy. And my job was not to upset the apple cart. That was truly my job. And in the end, suffering fools gladly or suffering people who were angry easily um, ended up, you know, with giving me everything I have. So there's a price to pay. If anybody thinks that this all just fell in someone's lap because they could talk or they got along or they knew how to tell a joke or, or shoot back a punchline, they are sorely mistaken. The climbing was steep and the rocks were jagged. Uh, that having been said, I made a money doing what I loved. I'm not complaining. Does that make sense? I mean, I, I recognize it for what it was. When do the managers, when do the managers make the headlines? The ones who enabled him, you know, the producers, the ones who answered to him um, and, and had no choice. They had bills to pay. People are saying, well, what happens to, you know, thing one and thing two? They couldn't do anything. What were they supposed to do? We all know what that's like. You either, you either go along or you're replaced by somebody the next day. And it's their dream job to be at a station like this, to be working with a so-called legend who's in the Broadcasting Hall of Fame. Ha! And uh, what is to happen to the people who let this go on? Because we all know that this is performative at this point. I don't think uh, we have quite figured that out yet as an industry, as you know, communities of women as organizations and businesses. So let's table that because I don't think we can come up with those answers today. But you brought up the Broadcasting Hall of Fame. You too have been inducted into this Hall of Fame. Uh, your career celebrated for its longevity. During that time of reflection, what came to mind as your proudest moments as a broadcaster? <sighs> You know what? I get asked, what was your worst moment? What was your funniest moment? My proudest moments. Oh, I suppose one of them had to be, uh, I was kibitzing with a guy who was on um, CTV News in Toronto and he was going to get his head shaved. And, and I, I did a bit on the air about him. He was very handsome at the time. Lance Brown was his name. And so he went on the air and said that I was going to get my head shaved and I was not. But then it was for uh, the Children's Wish Foundation. And so I said, okay, I'll do it. And the station got behind it. And I thought, if we get $9,800, it'll be great. And it got up to 98,000. And eventually it got up to $163,000 for me to have my head shaved by the late Mayor Mel Lastman in the Eaton Center. And um, yeah, I guess that was my proudest moment because I just used 
some overly processed hair and, uh, and my, my little place on the platform to do some good for, for some kids who really needed it. And that was, that was really, truly a proud moment for me. And any time that we were helping other people or that somebody came up to me and said, you know, that made a difference. I've, I've found a lot more of that, Sarah, since I wrote my book than, than happened more on the air. I mean, yes, people have said, you made my drive so much better. I'm so glad you were there. And all of those things where that was part of the job. But helping people to heal or to see that there's hope, that has truly, truly been my proudest moment. It, it was all made possible by broadcasting, but it was kind of outside of it. I do want to talk about you becoming an author, but first here, um, tell me about a time you felt most empowered in your career. Oh, that was my first day back in September of 2005. Uh, unfortunately, my new partner, Mike Cooper, wasn't with me that day because he had a non-compete from his previous station and he had to wait until the end of October. So I came on the station and I was on with a fill-in co-host. So it was kind of, it was, it was sort of, you know, not as impactful, but the ratings uh, went from like a three to an eight in that first fall book, September, October. They, they just, or a five to an eight, whatever it was, it was exponential. That was my most empowering moment. And I was still somehow embarrassed about it. I get these, these wonderful things that happen and then I feel embarrassed about them. I don't know why. Like getting into the Hall of Fame. I, I'm sitting here like some sad Betty Davis character from uh, Yes, Voyager or whatever movie in the 1930s with all made up and I'm all ready to go and I am waiting, waiting, waiting for the, for the FedEx guy to bring the award so I can run in and shoot something and send it to the hall people. It never came that night and I just thought, what kind of an idiot am I? So I never, I never actually had the award in my hands when I did my acceptance thing, but it's just... Everything with me is some kind of a, a, just a cruel comedy, but that's okay. I mean, if it keeps me laughing, if I can find a way to, to joke about it, even with Lauren's death, and I know that this is going to flip really quickly into the macabre, but the day of Lauren's funeral in Ottawa, a bunch of people from CHFI, especially Julie Adam and, and, and Wendy Duff, who was a boss, they came, and my producer Ian, beloved friend, came to that funeral and we gathered at the hotel motel kind of thing where, where Rob and I were staying and there was a bar and restaurant there. So there we were when this was all over and, uh, and Lauren's in-laws were sitting at tables and we were sitting up at the bar, I was sober then, and, and, uh, and we said to the, to the server, I said, um, can we get a bunch of chicken fingers and fries? And she said, oh, sorry, the, uh, the, the kitchen's closed. And I said, well, that is the worst thing that's happened to me today. <laughs> and I kind of slammed down my hands and everybody in my group busted up laughing. And, and of course, in, in among the other mourners, they're looking at us going, what kind of sick people are these? Well, they're the kind of people who get through with stuff like this. You know, it's how you survive. As you know, if you took in every story, every Amber Alert, every tragedy, every everything that comes across, it'd kill you. So you got to laugh. You got to laugh. That's what we do. We keep laughing. You brought up your book, Morning Has Broken, Love, Loss and Reclaiming Joy. What was the spark that sort of started that project? It wasn't me. Uh, I was on City Line with Tracy Moore uh, doing a kind of goodbye to Aaron thing for for Toronto and the rest of the country who didn't have a clue who I was. 
And uh, that day in the audience, because Tracy shoots a live audience, was a woman who usually goes out one Thursday a month with her sister. She's very, very busy. That day they chose to see City Line. And she emailed me a few days later. Well, I opened it a few days later. Turns out she's senior vice president of publishing and editor at HarperCollins. And she said, I think you've got a book in you. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, I think I do. And my husband didn't want me to, and I didn't want to because it was going to be digging into stuff I didn't really want to go back or even experience for the first time because I'd been so good at just, you know, kind of carp compartmentalizing, which is sort of my, my go-to survival. Um, so it was really hard, but that's when it was, uh, yeah, it was almost exactly the week before the, before we moved in 2016. So it was like when one door closes, holy Moses, does another one ever open? Was it therapeutic, at least when you look back at the process now? No, you know what? The therapy came later in writing and answering the emails from people who read it. Uh, writing it was terrible. And I would just put my head down. I put it off for so long that Iris, the woman who contacted me, said, do you need a ghostwriter? And I was like, no, 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 no. I've got this in me. I've been writing for years and years and years every day as a discipline on my blog. Um, so I finally, you know, I, I deal with hard deadlines. I'm a great procrastinator. Um, and then, yeah, well, it's how we all function, the best of us, right? So that's that got me going. And... Yeah, it wasn't, it, it wasn't therapeutic. And, and it, it was really painful for my husband because I would have to ask him, I would say, okay, Rob, what did the coroner's report say? What did the police say if you talked to them? You know, the different things. And he was the one who was in touch with the breastfeeding guru in Canada who has this book that says, you know, you breastfeed or, you know, you're, you're committing homicide or infanticide or whatever. Not, that's not what he says. I'm just kidding. Um, but yeah, so he had the hard talks with people. So I had to go, okay, you need to tell me what that is. Because again, with the compartmentalizing, I was protecting myself from anger. And I knew if I had anger, I wasn't going to survive. For those who don't know, Aaron Davis hosts not one, not two, but three podcasts. Damn girl. Real time for the Canadian Real Estate Association. A little something for the seniors called Elder Wisdom Stories from the Green Bench. And then there's Drift with Aaron Davis. Do you think that podcasting door sort of opened with all the experimenting you did on the blog and social media? How did you get into podcasting? Well, it's kind of weird. Um, they all just kind of fell in my lap. And I know people are going, oh, shut up. But they did, and one of them was through uh, just a, a, uh, a platform that I would audition on and get nothing over and over and over and over again, like everybody else. And they, they asked me, what would you charge to do a podcast? And we gave them a rate, and then they said, oh, and then we gave them a slightly smaller rate and made a deal. So that one is ongoing. Um, the other one, Elder Wisdom, Stories from the Green Bench. Uh, which is, it's getting all kinds of awards for, for connecting, you know, um, elders, seniors, really seniors, like my co-host is 87. And, and I take no credit for this at all, except for being the conduit. And, and Rob does most of the work just trying to clean things up and tighten things up and, you know, do all his magic. But yeah, there's that one. And then the other one is uh, through the Canadian Real Estate Association. I was doing some MC work for them out here. And uh, they said, we've got an idea for a podcast. Would you like to do it? And I said, well, I'll try. 
And it's, uh, it's worked out really well. And then there's my sleep stories. That was my own project that I just, I felt like I had to do. And it's the most work of all of them. And of course pays the least, but I got a sponsor, so that's good. Figures, eh? Why did The Drift end up being that personal little dream project for you? Because I would go to sleep listening to stories. I love stories. I used to say to my husband, tell me a story. And so he'd tell me how hockey went that day and I'd be, I'd be gone in 10 seconds. Um, or tell me about our taxes this year. You know, stuff like that. I, I love being told a story. And um, I thought I can't be the only one. And I want to do it in my own voice. And I want to do these stories that people know, but rewrite them a little bit happier. I mean, I just did Rumpelstiltskin. And, and, and if you read the Grimm Brothers version, I mean, this guy, he's just... Anyway, so I rewrite things so they have kind of gentler endings, and then I end it with five minutes of wave sounds. I just, it kind of feels like after all those years of waking people up, I want to do them a favor and put them to sleep. And it doesn't cost anything. I'm not making money off them. Uh, like I said, I have a sponsor, and I do the Made Possible by early in the podcast. And then it's just a nice story to keep you company, a stretch and relaxation. And then listen and go to sleep. That's all I want is for you to have a good sleep. It's Sarah Burke here, the host of the Women in Media podcast and the founder of the Women in Media Network. Yep, now there's an entire network. I've been working really hard to get things off the ground. And what would I do without coffee? I can barely function without it. But I feel much better about putting a coffee that's full of superfoods in my body. I've been loving the Focus Fuel Instant Mushroom Coffee from Organic Traditions. And of course, all the ingredients are organic. It's packed with lion's mane mushroom to support memory, focus, and cognitive function, adaptogens to nourish your brain, and MCT powder to boost your energy and improve mental clarity. And before you make that face, no, it doesn't taste like mushrooms. It tastes like coffee. Actually better than most. There are hints of cinnamon and vanilla, and it is absolutely delicious. Did I mention it also just won Best New Mushroom Enhanced Beverage in a 2024 Brand Spark survey? Want to try the Focus Fuel Mushroom Coffee yourself? Head to organictraditions.com and use the promo code WOMENINMEDIA20 for 20% off at checkout. And by the way, that applies for the entire site, not just the coffee. You're welcome. Just add water and get at it. In the very first place, if we go right back to the beginning of your career, what was it that first made you want to connect with an audience? I have always, always, always wanted to perform. Uh, it's not like we had performers in the family or anything like that. Um, I, when I was a kid, I would spend a lot of summers, uh, my parents would ship us off to Alberta to stay with my grandparents wherever we were stationed in the Air Force, mostly Trenton. I'd fly out to Alberta and be with my grandparents. My granddad had an orchestra and he played saxophone and he had people around him. He had instruments and stuff and guitar and piano and all kinds of stuff. And um, so I would take the microphone and learn to sing the song. So when I was about nine or 10 or 11 years old, I would go to these gigs, you know, among legions and that sort of thing. And I'd be, I'd be the singer. And I loved it, I loved it, I loved it. Um, and so I was comfortable in front of a microphone. And when I was in high school, uh, like when I was a kid, I would look at the reflection when I was doing the dishes and pretend I was doing a commercial for the, for the soap, <laughs> the hand soap. You know, it was just all there. And then in high school, I loved to do the announcements and all that. So, you know, the final, final weeks of uh, high school, 
there was a career day and I went to hear somebody speak and they were all booked up. The, the two speakers I wanted to hear were booked up. So I went and listened to the guy from the local college talk about the radio program. And it was like, it was lightning to me because I'd gone to bed at night listening to Barbara Frum and Mary Lou Findlay tell me a story on As It Happens um, on CBC. So I knew that there could be women in radio. And so I, I begged my way into an audition and they made a spot for me in September. And by November, I was on the air uh, at the local radio station. And second year, I was full-time and kind of marrying it with my college. And that was the story. So that's how I got into radio, uh, just turning 18. What was that local radio station? CIGL in Belleville. Uh, a really good family broadcasting system there, Quinty Broadcasting. They may have changed their name since then, but oh yeah, God, I was learning on the fly. Oh my God, and doing news on the uh, AM station and, and stuff. And thank God people phoned me to correct me on things because I had no idea. You know, that's the way you learn and you never forget it. You never forget what they called to tell you. <laughs> You know, that's so true, and a lot of people are really uncomfortable with that type of feedback. It's so refreshing to hear you just say, no, that's how you learn. Yeah, exactly, and, and you have to take it like that. But you also have to deliver it gently. You know, oh, you idiot, it's not Hiram Walker scotch, it's Hiram Walker. And I had to say it because it was part of the stock report, and or the stock market, and I didn't know Hiram from Hiram. My parents didn't drink scotch. Anyway, not that anyway. I could say Glenfiddich, but anyway. Yeah. <laughs> How did you feel when your daughter first talked to you about getting into broadcasting? Oh, Sarah, we tried to dissuade her. Um, my, she was, oh God, she grew up by a microphone. She was on our shows every Christmas. She, she was at every event. She saw what mommy did. She saw what daddy did. Rob was a producer at the fan for the morning show and for the evening show for years. Um, and so she knew what we did and she knew how much fun it was. Uh, you know, the free trips to Disney World, but not seeing that mommy had to get up at five o'clock and do what the mouse said for 12 straight hours. You know, all of that. She saw the best of it. And then in 2003, she saw the worst of it. And she would say to her dad, rather than, you know, because I, I went up to the cottage just to cocoon and she was still in town with her dad and he was taking her to school and stuff. And she'd say, are we moving? Is this it? Like, what, what's happening to us? I need to know what's going on. And so she felt that uncertainty. And at one time I, I thought, that's it. We're going to pack up. We're going to move west. And if I can get the station to pay for my move west and, and, and um, what was the other thing I asked for? It was just outrageous. I will promise not to go on the airwaves in Toronto ever again. And they balked at it. They, they just said, no, and thank God. So um, I just, um, we tried to talk her out of it. We said, we'll send you to France for a year. Go travel, go do anything. But <clears throat> she was so born for it. And uh, from the high school drama to, to getting in immediately at Algonquin College in Ottawa, she, she made a definite point of not being at my college in Belleville. She went further to, to Ottawa and then got a job right after first year at the nation's, uh, you know, news talk leader, uh, top 540 CFRA, 580 CFRA, sorry. Um, and, and she wanted to change her name. She didn't want anyone to think she was riding my coattails, but she was not. And she just skyrocketed 
to, the, uh, to hosting the noon national news package on her own when she was like 22. And, uh, wow. and reporters would call in from the field to get her perspective and to get her calm and to get her, you know, um, you know, opinion on things. She she was so wise beyond her years and really, really well suited to this. I think the social media meanness, though, in the past decade that has grown since she's been gone would have been extremely hard for her to take because she just she couldn't understand the vitriol. Most of it she'd laugh off, you know, so-and-so from uh, Kaladar is at it again, you know, or whatever, but it, it just got so mean. And if anybody had an opinion or, or stated facts, well, it's fake news, right? So I'm, I'm grateful she's not in the business now to see this kind of garbage. And no wonder CBC has taken down some of their comment boards and stuff. These, these kids, these interns, these young, even older journalists, they don't have degrees in psychology or ways to protect themselves from this hatred. They shouldn't be, they shouldn't be forced to take this on. And yeah. there's my little soapbox for today. <laughs> Your social media is a really lovely place, actually. Like, you know, you posted about um, the loss of Olivia Newton-John. Yeah. I loved what you did with that, right? You're reacting to headline news, but you're doing it in your own way. How do you think you'd be doing social media if you did have a show every day right now? Oh, boy. Um, I was always, thank you, by the way, for the kind words about Olivia. I didn't know what to do or what to say. So usually I find that what comes from the heart goes to the heart. And yeah. um, it seems to have. Um, in terms of social media, if I was, you know, we were lucky in that for a while we had an idiot boss who would forward emails to us if someone said you know Aaron and Mike were talking about frogs today and I'm offended because you know I, I whatever but he would forward it to us rather than stop it and say this person may have a point or delete it right that should have been our last line of defense and so those things coming in to us at five in the morning was wounding. I found that really hard to get a show started when that kind of garbage had come through him. You know, it's one thing to come from your, from your listeners, some anonymous person who hates their life, hates their wife, and can't wait to, you know, retire. But to come through your boss, it has that extra sort of thumbs up. This person's an idiot, but they're right. So... Um, I would hope for the same filters from our producers. And um, yeah, occasionally I would, I would often get on our Facebook page and I would block people for being really cruel, not to us, but to other people. And then someone from promotions would say, hey, Fiona Callum says that you blocked her. Is that right? And I said, yeah, she was being mean. And they say, we, got, we can't block people for being mean. Okay, I just wanted my, pl my playground, my sandbox, not to have any cat turds in it. And unfortunately, <laughs> that's the way it is these days. So I don't yeah. know what I do. I can control my own, my own playgrounds, my own sandboxes, my Instagram, my Twitter, my Facebook, and I love it. And if you're gonna be mean, yeah. You either have to explain what you meant or I'm going to hide your, I'm not going to delete it because then you'll know you're deleted, um, or I'm just going to block you. you I don't yeah. have time for that. And if you're a Trumper or, uh, you know, anything like that, I will listen to what you think is logic. Um, and then, no, sorry, this isn't the place to spread that. Don't go spread your anti-vax stuff elsewhere. I'm not, I'm not your place.
There's a million other places. I mean, you seem to really have embraced social media in a way that you don't always see your generation do. When do you remember first being on social media? And was it your choice or did someone ask you, like maybe at the radio station, to make an account or something? Oh, it was... um it was more or less a company choice. I started my blog in 2003. Ironically, it had nothing to do with me being fired. It was two months before. So that was just <laughs> serendipity. People suddenly knew where to go to AaronDavis.com to find out what the hell had happened. And how often does that happen in radio? Usually you are disappeared and that's it. You never existed. Um, but Jeez, I can't remember what year it was that we finally started putting away the books that we used to use to see, oh, that person died. Well, you know, what what year was their hit and was it, you know, should we find it and play it? it? Just to have that information at our fingertips. And I remember I used to answer spam. I'd get this email from somebody saying, come and play in our casino. And I'd write back and go, no, I don't want to. Stop bothering me. Which, of course, just went... Here, we got a live one, right? And, uh, and just the stupid mistakes. And I remember my boss coming in one day and going, you know, Aaron, you have to delete your delete box. You have to clear out your delete box once in a while. You have to what? And, 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 and having all these apps open on my phone or not. Yeah, just all the things that everybody kind of knew. Everybody in their 20s knew. But hey, hey, I was, you know, like double their age. And this wasn't intrinsic to me. And unless our daughter was showing it to me, I had no idea. So it was, uh, it was a learning curve. And I was, I was never afraid to say, Jay, who was the gre- greatest guy who got me my verified Twitter and everything like that, which I didn't even <laughs> know I would need. Uh, I said, Jay, I'm an idiot. I need your help. And, and so, you know, it's all in humility because what, what, do we have to, what do we have to gain by saying, I'm going to figure this out? No, what you gain is a, a phone that doesn't work anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Yikes. So in your opinion, what makes a great manager? They have your back. And uh, I was reading Julie Adams' book on kindness. I've read and, it too. Wonderful. Yeah. It is. And do you know what part I'm just going to, you'll probably have to remind me about the question about what makes a great manager. But the part that really stuck out to me, and you've probably heard this if you were dating someone, if he's not nice to the server, he's not nice. And that's kind of a test that she does when she's, you know, got a potential hire. She takes them out and watches their interaction with the server. Uh, Do they look up from the menu? Do they treat them with respect? Do they look at them, make eye contact? And it's all of these things that are like, yeah, that kind of, that shows you. Those are your tells. And um, I, I love that, that she cares enough to make sure that her people are good. And she, she would always, you know, just drop me or Cooper or I'm sure all of her staff a note saying, do you need anything? And after I was retired, rewired as I call it, she would, uh, she would text me and say, do you need anything? I'd say, yeah, health benefits would be great, thanks. But no, that never came true. Um, so yeah, just she was, she was caring. She was willing, be willing to admit a mistake. Um, listen yeah, to both sides. Accountability is a big one. Yes, 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 absolutely. Uh, you can be wrong and... and it doesn't mean you're, you know, you're not eating crow. I think there's so much, you know, in the Brene Brown school of everything, the strength and vulnerability is just, whew, it's wonderful. And to be yeah. seeing that in more and more managers is, uh, is a bit of a miracle too. 
So um, yeah, that's what makes a good manager, somebody who's got your back and cares about you, you know, doesn't say stuff to be pithy or pissy, just, just you know, thinks about your feelings and, and knows that you are a hothouse orchid. You're not like the other plants and you might have to be <laughs> tread around a little bit, but that you will get the orchid in the end, you know? So I don't know, I, I'm just indebted to her. There are a lot of people who feel differently about her because they've had different experiences from her. But hopefully in time, she gets a chance to prove to them what she proved to me. Or maybe she doesn't have to. Maybe it was then. Mm -hmm. Sounds like she made it pretty easy for you to forgive her, eh? Yes. Yeah, she really did. And the thing is, when I was fired by her, um, I thought, oh, damn, I always wanted to work for her because I got the impression from her kiss people that she had their backs. And she became someone that you would go to war for. You would, you would take a bullet for her. And I know that because of my wonderful and extremely loyal producer, Ian MacArthur, who was so loyal to Julie. And, uh, you know, even in the end, when he was let go, as the whole morning show team was, he could see her fingerprints on the, on the gentle aspects of his package. Boy, that sounds dirty. But you know what I mean. His retirement <laughs> package. Yes. Um, but... But yeah, she uh, she had a lot of influence on a lot of us and, and forgiving mm -hmm. her was easy. Forgiveness is just the only way or you carry mm -hmm. that and it's like, mm, it's like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Just yeah. to hold on to that anger and, and, and vitriol, it'll kill you. Sensing a theme here, not the first time you've said this on the podcast, but um, we've talked a lot about your colleagues, management that was around during your career. What would you say to someone just getting into the business, an up-and-coming broadcaster? Because I'm only 15 years in, and since my start, things have changed drastically. That's a good one. Because now you're not just the on-air personality, and I don't mean just, but I mean in addition to being the on-air personality, you are the face. You always were the face of the station. Like, I always found that. I, I, I had co-workers who didn't quite get that, who didn't understand why they couldn't yell at a cab for passing them by and call them names um, <laughs> yeah. when you were on a crowded street. No, you're the face of the radio station, and this is an honor, and you carry this. I, it was always far more one-sided on my part because, you know, for me, they could, they could can me. And uh, for them, they could can me. For me, I practically had a CHFI tattoo. And, you know, it's the way it goes. You are everything to the station. But remember, you'll feel like family, but it is just a job. Give them everything you can, but don't give them all of you because in the end business yeah it is business and I had a very good shrink tell me that you know I thought we were family but it was just business and that's especially now when there are so few companies owning so many stations and you there are fewer places to to learn because they're running you know syndicated shows or voice tracks from other cities and towns but just get as many skills as you can, as fast as you can, be valuable to everybody so that when there's an opening, they think of you because you were there and you did it. But value yourself too. I'm a big believer in volunteering, but I also know that this economy takes advantage of people who volunteer and of interns. So set a value on who you are and what you are, but know what you want. Yeah. And always be open to the stuff that you didn't know you did want, right? The world's your oyster. It really, really is. 
I, yeah. I, honestly, Sarah, I still open up broadcast dialogue and see where the jobs are. I'm insane. It never goes away. I think mornings in Red Deer. I could do that. I could but, do you that know, from home. I, yeah, it's going to be different with the time difference. Uh, really, I only ever score if I get a, a job in Hawaii because then I'm already up. But anyhow, <laughs> you know, it's just if you've got the talent, you will rise above. You know, you'll have college teachers say only one out of you, 89 students, is going to get a job. And that used to make Lauren so mad because that's what they would tell them. And yeah, they were right. But don't tell me I'm not getting the job because I'm going to get it. Totally. And reach out. Find a mentor. You know, ask for help. Don't be afraid. People like you and me and probably most of your guests, and you've had a pretty amazing roster of guests on this podcast. Oh, thank would, you. You're welcome. Would be happy to answer your questions. I listen to tapes, tapes. I listen to, you know, uh, what do you call them? Air checks. I listen to those all the time. Um, I don't mind. If you're open to the feedback, and for God's sake, if I take the hour and a half to write you feedback gently, carefully, please say thank you. Good yeah. Lord, that happens. That happens. Oh, yes. And don't forget to say thank you. Lauren, uh, not you, but you know the people we're talking to, Lauren would write thank you cards, personal cards, after she'd had an interview, not with a subject, but for a job. And boy, oh boy, did it make a difference. That was some good parenting right there. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, because that's, like, that's almost like accepting feedback with grace. It is, it, and it's, yeah. it's, it's saying your time mattered enough for me to write this and get it to you, you know? Yeah. Just say thank you. I appreciate everything you just said so much. And all I'm going to say is, where was the Aaron Davis keynote when I was contemplating resigning from my full-time job? So, I wish you so much success yourself, Sarah. But finding what really makes your soul sing and where you are a great fit, the world is your oyster, too. They're just better oysters <laughs> now. You. They are. <laughs> okay, so I asked you to think about some women that you would love to hear more from on this podcast. Who's on your guest wish list for the Women in Media podcast? You've made it so difficult for me to come up with three people who would be good on your show. But now I know how you get such a good guest roster because you use, you mine your guests and that's brilliant. So, all right, I would like for someone to interview you. I want to know your story. Is that a cop oh. out? <laughs> no, it's actually not the first time that I've heard that, but I've been like... Many women do. I'm sort of tiptoeing around some of the experiences I've had and definitely still processing some of them as well. So I don't know who would be the right person uh, to do that with me. Why don't you split screen it and do it yourself? What an idea. Let me sleep on that. There's a lot of tech going on there. Okay, so Jennifer Valentine. Uh, I don't know if you've reached out to her yet. She is sort of... Uh, she's careful about who she's talking with, but it doesn't have to be about Derringer. She and Taylor Kay, now this might be a really interesting two-sider or both of them. She and Taylor Kay are both women who have had, you know, really solid broadcast experience. Jennifer mostly television, Taylor mostly radio and still on the air. But are really good at the social media and monetizing their name and their presence and their products and their activities. I see a lot of Jennifer in the kitchen and Taylor's always doing something. That part fascinates me. How do you turn your platform, your followers, 
into money um, uh, without being, you know, the girl twerking on TikTok. Yeah, you've got to be able to, you know, kind of use your skills uh, unless they are twer twerking, in which case, good for you. Um, so <laughs> on the other end of the scale from twerking, I go back to Barbara Frum and Mary Lou Findlay. Now, of course, Barbara Frum has passed away, has been gone for, gosh, must be nearly 30 years now. But Mary Lou Findlay still lives. And I know this because she wrote a book about um, eight years ago. And she, uh, she was shopped around as, as a guest for me on the radio. And I thought, oh, I would love this, but they won't approve it. It won't be something that floats anybody's boat. So um, I would, she is old school early television for women broadcasting. She and Barbara Frum did the, the National, the Journal, and then it, it became, you know, as it happens. So she came from radio and then segued into the Journal. Just that whole thing about, oh my God, because neither of them was a beauty queen. And what did they go through? I oh, would just, I, I would love imagine. this. Yeah, because she's, she's a pioneer. And I think, I think she'd be fascinating. Uh, Valerie Geller is another woman. I know I'm going over my list of... Uh, oh, no, I love it. Yeah. Valerie Geller is, uh, she is a radio guru around the world. She travels the world teaching how to be an effective communicator. I have her book she on my shelf my back there. She changed my life. Oh, yeah? yeah? What was your biggest learning from her? To turn it around. It's not like, this happened to me yesterday. I couldn't believe it. It's like, something happened to me, but... I wanted to know how you would have reacted to it, right? Right away, you've got them going, okay, I'm listening. And yeah. it's just, that was the big thing. And I had learned in college that you always only talk to one person. And I had a one picture of my grandmother when I was working at that easy listening station. I love that. Yeah, I was talking to Graham, you know, when I was telling her the weather, or I was telling her what was going on around Belleville that weekend or whatever. I always talk to one person and boy, that makes a difference. Because if you're saying, good morning, everybody, you're not talking to me when I'm getting out of bed in the morning. So it's just um, maintaining the one-on-one. -on -one. So yeah, there you've got your list. In reverse order, uh, Valerie Geller, Mary Lou Findlay, you, Taylor Kay, and, and Jennifer Valentine. I didn't think I could come up with one, but you sparked a whole bunch in me. So thank you. No, thank you so much for coming on my podcast. Like you, you are radio royalty. Um, oh. I grew up in grew up in Toronto, so like this was a wonderful experience to speak to you about your career. And thanks for being so open about you know some of the tougher experiences. Thank you. And as you can hear, my neighbor has just started up his weed whacker, so <laughs> that's the time to go. Anyway, thank you, Sarah, so much. It was such a pleasure and continued success. Whatever you choose to do, may it make your heart sing. Does it get better than Aaron Davis? I mean, I have fabulous guests all the time. So yes, it continues to get better, but it's gonna take me a while to process that she was even a guest of mine. I'll link you to her book and her podcast and her website and all the Aaron Davis things in the episode notes. Next up, my girl, Morgan James. If you haven't heard her name before, well, you're going to know all about her in just two weeks. She is the only black woman programming country music, or so it seems, in Canada. And she's absolutely brilliant. She is my next guest. Until then, thanks for listening.
I'm Debbie Travis. And I'm Tommy Smythe. And this is Trust Me, I'm a Decorator. We're now podcasters. And why did we call it that? Well, you know us as decorators, but we've got lots more to share. We want to talk about travel and relationships. We're going to have amazing guests on. Guests who inspire us for sure. We'll probably talk about design too. And of course, Tommy, don't forget about food. Oh my gosh, how did I forget about food? So please follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or as they say, wherever you get your podcast. And we'll pop right up when we have a new episode. Where's us luck? This podcast is distributed by the Women in Media Podcast Network. Find out more at womeninmedia.network.